As a treating professional speech therapist in BCBA, I find it really difficult to stay in touch with current research. So I am on a mission here at ABA Speech to make that research more accessible to all of you who are listening. And so today I had on Dr. Erin Barton. She wrote a really great article called Teaching Board Game Play to Young Children with Disabilities. And if you followed my work for a while, you know that I talk about modified leisure skills a lot as a way to help students increase their joint attention skills, to increase their social engagement, their social skills with peers and with family members and other people in their lives. It's just a really important skill for our students. And today we are breaking this down. Erin talks about how she looks at cooperation, cooperation games, not winning or losing, which I also have a focus on. So I had a really, I just had a delightful time talking to Erin. She does a lot of research in this area. She um, is really giving us real life strategies that we can incorporate into our therapy sessions, which I think is so very important. That was my last question is how can we as speech therapists and BCBAs incorporate this research into our practice? But I think this episode really has implications for people who are parents, if you're listening to, because I know we have parents that listen. She also talked about how visuals are a prompt that may never need to be faded. Um, And I created a game called Double Up for my students who were in middle school, high school, older students. And that was really the idea that we can engage in something that's social. It has a matching component. It's age respectful. And so I really like connecting with like-minded people. I hope that you really enjoy this episode and this talk with Dr. Erin Barton. And let me know in the, you can let me know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, Do you like this type of podcast episode where I'm talking about very current research and how we can bridge that gap from research to practice. Because I'm always trying to get information to you that it's going to help you transform your therapy and help your autistic learners find their voice and always trying to keep things fun and functional. And what can be more fun than talking about play? I hope that you really enjoy this episode and make sure to leave a review on the Autism Outreach Podcast. Let's get into it. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Welcome to the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have a great show for you today. We have with us Dr. Erin Barton. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I was doing some diving into the research, as I do, as part of uh, being a a treaty clinician, um, but also of having ABA speech. I always want to make sure that I am helping everybody understand what research is out there, because sometimes when you're practicing... Well, let's not lie. All the time when you're practicing, it's really hard to stay in touch with the research. And I came across your article that we're going to talk about today, and it really resonated with me because I I started my YouTube channel probably six years ago when I started my business, and I started with video models for... It's different than what we're going to talk about, but it was video models for games that we play often and modifications for like Uno and Connect Four and Scrabble. And it was just like stuff I was doing at work. And then I wanted to share it with all the RBTs and one-on-ones and parapros. And I was like, how do I get this video? Oh, I'll just do YouTube unlisted. And that was kind of the growth of my my YouTube channel oh. now. <laughs> yeah, I'll have, to sh- I'll have to send you the link so you can tell me what you think. Uh, yeah. Um 
see those. Yeah, definitely. So tell me, tell us a little bit about you and your journey into the field, how you, um, you know, and what kind of what you're up to now. Yeah. So um, I was a special education teacher in Chicago public schools. So I taught little children with autism um, in Chicago public schools, which is where I'm from. I'm from Chicago originally. And I did that for several years and um, was very much focused on inclusion and teaching um, my children with autism to play with their peers and get out in the community Mm -hmm. and struggled with that quite a bit. And so, and struggled with many other things related to instruction and best practices and um, looked into graduate school. So I, I don't even know if we had Google and maybe Yahoo, something, (laughs) whatever. I searched something at the time and it was like 2002 and uh, Vanderbilt just kept coming up. And so I applied to graduate school. I recently um, got my master's degree at DePaul University in Chicago, but my master's degree was in early childhood ed. So regular education, early childhood focused. And I knew I really wanted to dive into special ed. So Vanderbilt kept popping up as um, one of the best programs for special ed. So I applied there, got in, um, had a wonderful graduate degree program and a wonderful experience. Mark Woolery was my advisor. And during that, during my graduate degree, I got really interested in, um, after being a teacher and working with students in play. And so a lot of, in Chicago, oftentimes you the children come to you with IEP goals. And so I didn't have much say around their IEP goals. Um, which I know happens in districts all over the country. Um, And so many of them had goals that were written somewhat like the child will play with peers or the child will talk during play or the child will play with five different actions um, during play with peers. And what I was struggling with was my children didn't know how to play to begin with. They were they had very repetitive play, really restricted play, and were um, for the most part a- avoiding play and not playing like um, their peers. And so I dove into the play research, got really interested in play, did several studies and have done several studies focused on pretend play specifically mm. um, in children with autism. Mm-hmm. Um, And then I graduated, had a couple other um, faculty positions, and now I am just doing consulting, which has been so much fun. And um, I love the flexibility that it gives me and um, also continuing to do a lot of research, though, which is also really fun. Um, So that's how I got to where I am now. And that's how I got interested in play. And, And then this specific study that um, you found and referenced is a study where with is it actually a replication of a previous study we did where we're where I'm try I am looking to expand the play research outside of just pretend play to specifically play with peers so that I can then support children in the classroom in playing in ways that their peers are playing and doing it in a way that's independent so can potentially involve as little adult um, intervention as as you know needed um, to really support their inclusion and participation in the classroom and of course to support teachers too. I love that. And I love how you stress the word independent because I have seen and it's it's hard when you're in the yeah. thick of it, it's really hard. I'm a school-based SLP part-time and but I've been doing it for 20 years. And I always tell people because I've held administrative positions, it's all about 
peer-to-peer interaction. It is, and when you said independently, I am just envisioning so many times I've been doing consults where I yeah. see really it's just the pair pros playing a game or the RBTs because when we plan these lessons, it is very hard to work on peer-to-peer interaction, but that's really where the magic is because I always said, I'm trying to work myself out of a position, especially when I worked with older kids. I was like, I want them to simulate hanging out, you know, like, and I would set up all these scenarios in the school and, um, and the clinics that I worked in, but it is really, really hard. And I feel like it's overwhelming before you get a framework for how to do it. So that's why I was excited because I do a lot of talk about modified leisure skills and social skills and and things like that. So I'm excited to talk about this. So I was combing through the research and I came across an article that was called Teaching Board Game Play to Young Children with Disabilities. Um, And I think you kind of already touched on like, why is this so important? But it sounds like when you were in the classroom, you saw it as important because was it like a lack of socialization of the students or what did you see like the need that you were excited to start researching this more? Yeah. So, well, in the classroom, when I was a teacher, my um, classrooms were segregated. So they had very, the only opportunities they had to interact with their peers were during um, gym and sometimes Mm -hmm. on the playground. So very, very limited. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in my work with teachers and in schools since then, what I've seen is there are very few that children with disabilities in particular um, often have very few positive interactions with their peers across the day. Mm -hmm. And what I always say is children, they need to have, I mean, there has to be a 100% chance in a given day that they have positive interactions, at least one, but hopefully more than one with their peers throughout the day. Um, And we have to, we know that in many cases we have to teach peers you know, we have to teach all children to have those interactions. Um, And we do that in many different ways, but, you know, in the context of nurturing responsive relationships and high quality environments, and then more children will need, many children will need more targeted interventions Mm -hmm. where we specifically focus on those independent interactions with children. And we can, we have to teach all children to do that, right? So not just peers, not just children with disabilities, but we, if we want them to interact together, then we have to teach them how to do that. And so um, um, board games felt like a, and are a naturally occurring um, small group context that can happen in a classroom and can be independent, can occur without an adult and in across many settings do, right? And so um, that's that's kind of where we got to um, the board games. Oh, I love that too. Because what I would do when I was in the schools, you know, sometimes we would work on, we'd have peers, we would teach, I would teach the game in individual therapy, I do it in a group, and then we would have a reverse inclusion where typical peers were coming to the classroom or to a main common area. And then we were generalizing the skill there as well. And so I think your article has a lot of implications too, even for siblings in home. Like that's one of the games that I taught one of my clients was modified connect four. So it was a very um, impaired learner. And so we just, he picked red or yellow and he put in a piece and I put in a piece and that was it. There was no contrived, like one of my big things is like my turn, your turn. I don't like to make kids say that. You know, sometimes we're just like playing the game. But what was cool is that I saw him for outpatient therapy and I told his mom and his mom purchased the game for him and his sibling Uh over Christmas. And then she came back over break and said, oh, they played together. And like, that was so important because 
they had never really done a turn-taking activity together. So this has like a ripple effect, which I love that I think it's so applicable to everyday life. It's not just some skill that's like, well, why are we teaching this? It's like, it's very functional. So I'm a big fan. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about the research questions that you were hoping to answer with your this particular line of research? Yeah. So we were primarily looking to see if we could teach the children to um, independently play the board game. So to play the board game independently without adult prompts, we did adapt the board games a little bit. Mm -hmm. So we include a visual, just a visual cue of the steps that each turn involves, um, which is a really easy way, right. To adapt and, um, um, adapt any, you know, board game or any really material. And of course, visuals are a prompt that never has to be faded. You know, like we use visuals as adults all the time. So mm -hmm. I love having visuals and then you could just keep it in the box. Mm -hmm. And so we taught peers to use it. So the, the visual was a prompt, but it wasn't something that, you know, was, um, ever really needed to be faded. It could become part of the game. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was our um, primary research question is, does the system of least prompts and this visual schedule um, increase the um, uh, child's independent board game play? So their, their use of the correct board game steps, um, which are somewhat loosely defined, you know, because each of the games was a little bit different. Um, and the, But the board game steps were... Um, Pretty so we also broke up the each step into kind of four components just to make it consistent across the board games, um, which also was helpful for so every child knew that there were these things they had to do for each game, but then the visual schedule kind of cued them into what they were for the specific game. Um and and so that was our primary research question. We also wanted to look at generalization across games. So we had a generalization game. And then we, of course, looked at um, maintenance. We also looked at social communication. So if peers, if the children increase their um, communication with each other um, during uh, the intervention. And then, well, the other thing I should say about the intervention is kind of sounds like you're um, similar into as me into like really wanting this to be as natural as possible. And so we didn't teach the children just to play one game. We had an array of games mm -hmm. and then they selected which game they wanted to play each day. And we rotated who picked and we made sure that they didn't have the same day, the same game more than two days in a row. Um, so we did have rules about that, but it wasn't like we taught them to just play this one game. It was mm -hmm. in a array of games. Um, but then we made these common, we made common stimuli within the game so that we were teaching kind of a, a generalized board game play approach. Yeah. I love that because I think in kind of old school ABA, it's like, because I've been duly certified for 12 years. So it's like, okay, First, we learn this one thing yeah. and to mastery. And then we learn this other thing to mastery. Then we randomly rotate. But mm -hmm. I, you know, I've loosened up on that teach loosely, Dr. Carbone says, right? I have kind of take that because I, I like that because there are a lot of games listed, actually games I am not so familiar with. And, you know, maybe it's because I think when I was working with students who um, had more complex communication needs, I was working with students who were like middle school, high school, we're not going to be able to strategize to get four in a row. So we did things like connect four, 
modified yeah. Uno where we pick, we're just matching yeah. to the color card. My company even created a game for older students that was based on matching, but like age respectful. Um, yeah. And I know in this study, we're working with younger learners, but can you just tell us like how you chose some of the games and maybe just like a couple yeah. names of the games, if you can tell us, because I know people are always wanting like new things to, you know, new things yeah. for therapy rooms. So we've used these games in a couple studies and they're from this brand called Peaceable Kingdom, which I have no like no connection to the right. brain at all, okay. but it, and I've actually bought some of them for my son too. Um, they are, the whole point is cooperation and social interactions and there's yeah. no winner. Right. And so that just made it easier. Mm-hmm. We felt like having that consistent. So it's really about playing and there is for some of them, there is an end goal, but it's about working together to get that end goal. So there is a beginning and an end, which is nice, but it's not like somebody wins, you know, it's like this whole idea is cooperation, working together. Um, And so the brand is Peaceable Kingdom and they have many different options. And then the nice thing is they are very adaptable too. So they, um, you know, and they're developmentally appropriate for young children, but they do have kind of a span. So there are some that are a little bit more complex. Um, Like I think acorn soup was a little bit more complex, Um, but we had there, we used one called feed the woozle, um, one called sunny day pond, hoot owl hoot. And I, and then friends and neighbors. There's also one called acorn soup that we used in a previous study. That's a little bit more complex too, but um, and then we randomly identified one as a generalization game and used the other three within the intervention. Okay. And then again, let the, the children select which one they wanted to play. Oh, neat. Yeah, I'll have to look that up because I was reading the names of the games. and I was like, oh, I don't know these. Like another one I like is Zingo. And I'm like, I don't know these games. Okay, because that makes sense. Okay, that's good though, because sometimes people in the schools will get like these grant funds. Like I'll see them sometimes in Facebook groups or like the end of the year in May, everybody has to use their money or it like goes away. So let's remember this people, Peaceable Kingdom. I'm going to Google that. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the participants? Kind of the, you talked a little bit about the procedures with the visual and kind of sounds like you had a framework for how to play, but I guess in my mind, I'm wondering, like, what was the language level of the learners? Were they given a standardized assessment? Or how did you kind of pick who it was, you know, that was in the um, Yeah, so we had children who were between three and six. I don't think any were six quite yet. But um, it was in a, a preschool program that was inclusive. So the program itself was inclusive. Um, and then the children had to have motor skills that meant that they could play the game independently because we, of course, you know, we also want to teach children who have limited motor skills and motor abilities um, to play these games. But for this study, we were really looking at children who had the motor skills. So we didn't have to also teach that Mm -hmm. just for the study. Um, Children who um, didn't have severe aversions to peer interactions Mm -hmm. or to playing board games. And we just Um, looked at that through a questionnaire. Um, We also wanted children who could independently follow one-step directions because that would have been, that's like a precursor to, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, playing these games. Um, Of course, you can also teach children who don't have those skills to play games. But for this study, that's what we looked at. And then, um, yeah, uh, children who had an identified um, disability or were um, identified as potentially having a disability. Um, they were, they all had a developmental delay, um, print limited speech. Um, I'm just looking up now. Um, 
One child had ASD. Um, yeah. Okay. I, yeah. We can all kind of relate to that type of learner. We're like, okay, this makes sense. And yeah, this sounds like a good, a good goal. Um, and then, so you're using the visuals, you're kind of creating this framework. You're, I love the idea of, you know, using a variety of different games, but they all kind of sound like it's the same kind of cohesive. I like that too. When I went back to read the article last night, again, I was looking at the the cooperation piece because as a speech therapist too, I used to love to go into group and sometimes, you know, how can we create this cooperative activity where it's not about winners or losers, but it's about that peer-to-peer interaction and look, we're doing this together. Isn't that, because this is like hard to play and stuff. So right? yeah, it, it's yeah. so very hard. Um, so how did the students do with the intervention? What was, what were some of the results of the study or what did you guys gather from it? Yeah, the results were very similar to the previous study in which they learned unprompted board game play fast. They learned it very fast. Um, They had like, so we used a research design called a multiple probe across participants. Mm -hmm. And so we had children playing in in, with peers. Um, And so each child included in the intervention, there were four target children um, played separately, but with peers. And so it was Mm -hmm. a separate context. Um, And they learned fast and they um, independent play um, increased immediately. And um, children, you know, reached a mastery in um, pretty quickly um, in what I think would be typical, like in, and very useful and applicable in a classroom setting between like five and 10 sessions, which, hmm. um, yeah, was yeah. really good. And then they maintained over time too. maintenance was a little bit more variable, yeah. um, but they really, they maintained it over time. And then they also generalized to another, to the other board game. The place where we didn't see big increases was in their social communication, mm-hmm. um, didn't target it specifically. It was kind of a corollary behavior. Um, but that's, you know, one of the things you want to see when you're teaching mm-hmm. children to play together. They were talking to each other. It just didn't change during over the course of the intervention, um, which is similar to what we saw in the previous study as well. Anecdotally, what we noted is that the children did start to have more complex conversations about the board game oh. during the intervention, which mm-hmm felt really good and felt like a really positive result mm-hmm. of the study, but our measurement procedures didn't capture that, um, mm-hmm. couldn't capture that. And so I, I feel really good about the social communication outcomes. The children were talking more specifically about the board games, which is what you want to see. Yeah. We just didn't, we couldn't capture that in the way we were measuring it. Um, but it was, we were excited about that. Oh, that's so interesting. I just had um, another person on. She's actually going towards her PhD, I believe, Stephanie Gonzalez, and she wrote an article about answering WH questions or recall, which is really hard for autistic learners. And I feel like these all would go hand in hand, right? Because the kids are talking about the game and then immediately after somebody could swoop in and say like, oh, what did you do with so-and-so? And And they could say, yeah, I love that. Yeah. So functional. This is amazing. Um, So I'm always thinking like, how can we bridge the research to practice gap? And I, you know, I shared some things that I've done because this is an area I really like to talk about. But um, how do you think that SLPs and BCBAs can incorporate this research into our practice? Are there some takeaways that the the everyday clinician can start implementing? Well, I think games like this, and really you can adapt any game you have just to make it a game that's more about cooperation. You know, like if you have Connect Four, like let's just put all 
boxes in until we get, you know, like a certain number till we fill it up. Mm-hmm. Um, you really can incorporate, um, can make any game kind of a cooperation focused game. Um, and so then thinking about what your learners need to move towards doing it independently. And if you have to, I think like be, think outside the box. If you have to make a visual schedule, if you have to change, if you have to write on the cards, if you Mm -hmm. have, you know, like um, change the game so that it does support the student's independent play. Like you don't have to use the game as it stands. Um, And then the teach, you know, teach the children how to, how to use it and teach them. And when you're teaching them, you know, watch how they're using it. And do they need it in like another visual? Do they need different pictures? Um, figure out what they need to help them do it independently. And then over time, fade your support so that they can do it independently. And of course, reinforce their play. Um, and I would say also you want to motivate them. So, um, you know, we, um, gave them choices to, to um, you know, help motivate them. Um, but you might think about what the children are interested in. Are there any games that they already know how to play? Kind of build off what their interests are, what they're, um, what they're into, what you know is reinforcing for them already, and use that within um, the play that you're doing. And I will say um, also from the beginning, you know, we had um, peers we had the groups together from the beginning, which I think can be done. And I I support fully rather than like, you have to train the children with disabilities separately. You can do it all together, you know, Mm -hmm. and it really can just be, you know, there, you might have a child like an autistic learner who actually knows how to play this game better than a peer. And so you Mm -hmm. might, you know, it doesn't have to be that kind of one directional, the peer supporting the, the child with a disability or the child with an IEP. I love that. Such great information. And I think everybody is going to look up that, um, those games. And, you know, I think we need to look around our own therapy rooms and say like, oh, I like the idea of the cooperation focus because I always talk about it as modified leisure skills and um, in a way to like, allow kids to keep their individuality, but work on social skills, right, in this way. Um, But I love the idea of the cooperation focus, because in essence, that's kind of what I'm doing. I've definitely been on consults before where I've done teletherapy, and I've said, oh, can you get Connect 4? You know, I have this way that, and I've had somebody say, like, oh, well, he can't do that. And I'm like, don't ever say that, but let's just modify for the what learner, you know? <laughs> yes. Lots of yeah. And then, then the student could do, and I just shut my yeah. mouth because that's what I do. And then the person could, the kid could do it. And then the, then the staff was like, oh, wow, that's so cool. So it was a teachable moment, which I think is nice because then you can also generalize this to the home, the community, you know, extended family, um, which I think is really nice. And sometimes Absolutely. I don't know. I think this is going to air after the holidays, but sometimes when you have an autistic student, you're like, oh, what do I get them for? I know their birthday or holiday or, you know, and this might be something nice to to think about. It has a lot of implications. So, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was really, it was really great to connect. Yeah, it was really great to meet you. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.